Alrighty, welcome back to Linux in the Ham Shack. I, thank you all for downloading again, us again this time. I hope you all uh, enjoyed the last program, and we're going to try and uh, keep things going the same way. I'm Richard, by the way, KB5JBV, and over there in the Pine Valley is Russ. Say hello, Russ. Hello, everybody. This is Russ uh, down in the valley with the pine trees and a few other varieties up here in north-central Arkansas. The interesting thing about North Central Arkansas and being down in the Pine Valley is that we have just as much squirrels, just as many squirrels in Dallas as he does down there in the Pine Forest. Ours are two-legged, though. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, uh, y'all have sent some emails in, so let's go ahead and jump on those real quick. Let's get started with this first email. Uh, I received it today, so we'll just go ahead and start on this one. Uh, this one comes from, doggone it, KI6FEN says, thanks, guys, for responding to my question so thoroughly on the last webcast. I think the issue that resonated with me was keeping older equipment alive by using a smaller operating system. I need to find an old laptop and get a small distro on it. Thanks. And that's from uh, KI6FEN. Now, unfortunately, I don't remember which question he was referring to, but, yes, you can definitely keep this older equipment alive. Some of the smaller equipment with the uh, less less memory and slower speeds and uh, everything else, and uh, that's one of the one of the big selling points for Linux. I definitely agree with that, and it's interesting that the trend to smaller and lighter computers is coming back around. It seems like there's a well, there's a trend in you know higher end machines for gaming processing and all that kind of thing, and you can run Linux on those just as well as you can Windows. But with the new smaller and lighter computers like the Atom-based processors and netbooks and things that are running more towards the embedded side, we're coming back around to less processing power, less memory capacity, and less disk space again, and being able to use versions of Linux that are for like the triple PCs and the HP netbooks and all of those computers is uh, one of the greater features because... Heavier operating systems like Windows, especially Vista, don't run nearly as well on them. In fact, I believe the one we bought has XP on it. I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it's XP specifically because it doesn't have enough horsepower to run Vista. So with that new generation of computers coming around, uh, having an operating system like Linux available, and some of them even come pre-installed with Linux, is uh, a great benefit. Uh, my laptop, I bought it brand new, and unfortunately it ended up with uh, Vista on it. It's a 2 gigahertz machine with a gig of uh, memory in it, and I was extremely disappointed when I received Halo 2 for Christmas one year because it didn't have enough horsepower to run it. So uh, it's really nice to have these Linux operating systems that run, uh, run on a much uh, more modest amount of equipment or hardware. All right, so the next one... Uh, Next one on our list is from Rob, V3FRJ. Rob writes, I'm fairly new to Linux and have really basic have a really basic question. I've gone to the uh, software repositories and downloaded several ham programs and asked that they be installed. Get prompted for my password, and the software is downloaded, and it looks like it's being installed. But when I go to the menu on the main desktop under ham radio, they are not there. What am I failing to do? Well, Rob, 
you have to understand that uh, the desktop in different distributions are set up differently. Uh, some some places they don't have a uh, place in the main menu for ham radio software, so it might get stuck under other or under one of the utility sub menus. You may have to go ahead and look for them. In some cases, it may not install them in the memory at all, in the menu at all, and you may have to go hunt them down. Hunting them down, they're pretty easy to locate, isn't that right, Russ? Usually pretty easy to locate as long as somebody's bothered to include the desktop file that goes with it. Otherwise, all you have to do is find the uh, executable, which is usually under slash user slash bin, and make a shortcut to it. And just like in Windows, you can take those shortcuts and drag them around, put them up in your menu bars, put them on your desktop, take them in and out of the menus, whatever you need to do with them. Pretty straightforward stuff, and it works the same way as creating a shortcut uh, under Windows. So pretty easy to do. And the great thing is you can type that stuff in a terminal if you know the name of it. Uh, before you go to try and set up the menu item, you could always bring it up in a terminal. That's the great thing. Uh, one of the great things about Linux is the fact that the programs are not tied to the desktop like they are in Windows. So if you can run it in a terminal, you can set it up as a shortcut and be off to the races. Yeah, and it's also interesting that the programs in Linux often, not in every case, but in most cases, are not tied to their name either. In Windows, sometimes uh, people may remember getting that error where if you change the name or the extension of a program, it'll say, well, if you do this, it may no longer work. But the name of a program and what you want to call it or how you want to view it under Linux doesn't usually matter. So you could change FLDigi to something like... uh, my PSK program or something like that and it would still work just as well and there you have it I mean there it's just a matter of going and hunting it I don't know you didn't just say in what email in your email what distribution you're running in the case of something like uh, Ubuntu or Debian yes uh, they will have a ham radio subdirect sub uh, directory under the application menu you may have to activate it uh, if it's not in there, you can put it in there. But sometimes it'll take uh, stuff that's more sound-oriented and stick it over in the in the sound and video submenu or or that kind of stuff. Right now, uh, on my on the machine I use every day, I don't have a ham radio subdirectory or a submenu. I'm not sitting at that machine right now. But at the time I did, yes, occasionally I had to go hunt down the program and bring it on over and put it in the right place. You may uh, may just need to look around for it. And uh, I'm going to get back to you email, and we're going to work this out. You got one over there from KB5WCK, Russ? I do have one here from KB5WCK. That's Jeff. And he sent us a, uh, looks like a comment at Black... No, no, this was a comment on the LHS website. And he said, I was listening to episode 14 and heard you read the emails I sent you. Thanks for mentioning my site. I'm adding new things fairly regularly, so keep checking back on it and keep up the good work on Linux in the Hamshack. 7-3. And again, that's from Jeff, uh, KB5WCK. And I don't remember if we have a link to him, but if we don't, we'll have one shortly. I think just before I got this comment, um, I saw that he was following me on 7-3s.org, so I need to get over there and follow him back or become a friend, or whatever the thing is over there. For those of you who are not familiar with 7.3s.org, you definitely need to get over there and sign up. It's 
another social networking site, but uh, it's done by him, set up and totally coded by him. The name is Chris Matthew N seven I C E. So if you're not familiar with seven threes dot org, seven three s dot org, go over there and sign up for it and follow us over here and we'll follow you back and you can get updates on the show and from other hams and all that good stuff. I don't know why that turned into a plug for seven threes dot org, but there it is. Well, you know, seven threes dot org is one of those sites which uh deserves mentioning. Uh, just like some of the others we've talked about, hamtest.net, hamtest.uk, DX Anywhere. There's a lot of good sites out there. And, yes, we're trying to get those uh, some of those links gathered up. And like I told you all last time, we got a list. We got a list. Do you have anything else to add on uh, WCK's website? I, I went over and looked at it, and it's got a lot of good information. We're still right up at the top of the news uh, items right now. He's got us over there and mentioned uh, that we're a good resource for Linux and Ham Radio, and we want to thank him for that. But I don't know if you had anything else to add. No, actually, you pretty much covered most of it. Yes, I've gone over and taken a look, and I believe Jeff is the same guy that was uh, contacting me about the software that uh, we're using to record a podcast. And uh, I would would be happy to see another Ham Radio podcast. You know, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, that when uh, I first started out over at Resonant Frequency, there were there were three non-news-related amateur radio podcasts. There was myself, Solder Smoke, and Long Delayed Echoes. And now we're actually starting to get some uh, good information out there for a lot of folks uh, with Jerry Taylor, KD0BIK, over at the Practical Ham Radio Podcast, and even the guys over at ICQ Podcast, Colin Martin. Y'all need to go give them a listen also. And now... You know, we just turned it into a big old commercial for everybody. <laughs> well, that's okay because I've actually uh, started to. I've actually found uh, practical am- <laughs> the practical amateur radio podcast gets easier and easier to listen to every every episode. And he's picked uh, some good topics. He's now doing interviews, so Jerry's doing some good work over there. All righty. Last but not least, it is time once again for Microsoft Watch. We received the last email is from Gene. K8EE and uh, Gene wrote us a pretty uh, pretty interesting email. Let me go ahead and read that for y'all. Uh, I've tried very hard to give Linux a chance over the last 10 years. The conclusion that I have arrived at is that Linux is has too many problems to be practical. I believe that the problem is too many cooks spoil the broth. I listen to your podcasts with great interest. I find it very interesting to hear about all the hoops you have to jump through to make things work. At the end, I wonder if hearing all of that, why anyone in their right mind would ever consider running Linux. I guess Linux is fine for anyone that likes to tinker, but not ready for prime time. I think you guys love Linux because you hate Microsoft so much. 73, Gene, K8EE. Well, let me tell you, Gene. The first, I, I find the first part of your uh, your email pretty interesting, simply because do you think that there's one guy in Redmond sitting there <laughs> writing Windows? And the fact of the matter is, do you think that Windows in itself contains all of the programs that you run under Windows? I'm sure this is just another case of uh, tackling an advanced uh, distribution of Linux, Linux and uh not taking the time to work with something that's a little simpler. 
you know, uh, we've had two or three uh, situations that uh, folks have wrote in like this, and it turns out that they were trying to run Mandrake or Debian or Slackware or, in some cases, even Gentoo, which are uh, kind of difficult to work with. I ran Windows starting with Windows 2.0, Windows 2.0. So if I have a little bit of a dislike, dislike for Windows, that's because I've spent so many years dealing with it. You know, as far as jumping through hoops, you want to talk about a nightmare? Packet Radio is a nightmare. Now, Packet Radio, at one time, and you may or may not remember this, some of y'all out there, but Packet Radio at one time, we had three different pieces of Node software to choose from, 18 different BBS programs to choose from, not to mention the TCP IP nodes we could choose from. And then there was Rose servers, uh, chat boxes, TextNet, and all this other stuff. The fact of the matter is that the model for Linux is pretty much uh, the same as it is for Microsoft. It's just uh, it's handled in a different way. A bunch of people working on the software and getting it up and running. The fact of the matter is, though, it gets done faster because there's not so many licensing constraints to deal with. Looking at the uh, second half of the thing, jumping through hoops. I understand. I was a I ran WinLink uh, Telpak node for some time. I ran F6FBB as a BBS system when I was the uh, Packet Digital Hub down here in DFW. None of that stuff ran on Linux, and I did jump through some hoops. But, you know, there's some folks out there, I know one extra class in particular, that can't tell the difference between uh, KB5JBV and KB5JBV-7. I just never could convince him that that was two different call signs. As far as this is concerned, if you're a Microsoft fan, stick with Microsoft. If that is your safe zone, go ahead. But I could put my wife on a copy of Ubuntu, and she's never done anything except Windows. And she'd chug right along and never know the difference. So what do you got to say, Russ? I definitely have to agree with your position that uh, the developers or the cooks in the kitchen are spoiling the broth because there are probably not as many developers for Windows as there are for Linux, but that's only because uh, Microsoft develops in a closed-source environment and they hire the people that, do their development, but then there's the applications as well, and everybody develops applications on their own or in their own teams, and that's above and beyond what happens out in Redmond with the operating system. And the same thing is true of Linux. There are lots of Linux developers, and then there are lots of new and other software developers as well. And the two, you know, one runs on top of the other. And then, of course, there are uh, cross-platform applications which run on a variety of different operating systems. And then, of course, you have the container programs like Java and Mono and things like that, .NET, that create uh, environments for operating systems where you're supposed to be able to create multi-platform applications as well. So the development of applications and operating systems in the Microsoft world and in the open source world is actually pretty similar. And I think that kind of debunks your comment that cooks spoil the broth because it's it's all really the same. Richard made that point, and I happen to agree. It's great that you listen to the podcast, even if you don't particularly like our philosophy. I think it's more important for people who don't agree with us to listen 
hopefully will be able to sway you in some way. You seem to be pretty set in your ways about Microsoft, um, and if 10 years of experience hasn't changed your mind, then 10 more probably won't either. You're not alone in your position, that's for sure. As to your comment about we love Linux because we hate Microsoft, Richard would agree with me that neither of us actually hate Microsoft. There are open source developers and hardcore Linux users who do hate Microsoft and everything it stands for. We're not in that boat. We think that there's a time and a place and a use for everything, Microsoft, OS X, Sun OS, and Linux included. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not so much we hate Microsoft as we hate Bill Gates. <laughs> well, you know, I don't even hate Bill Gates because Bill and Melinda Gates have their foundation and they're doing a lot of good work in the universe and and they're not really even associated with Microsoft anymore. So whatever they did to get Microsoft where it is, they're good they're good business people if nothing else. You know, they're still good business people now and they're and they're doing a lot of charity work and they you can't really hold anything against them. And to tell the truth, you know, uh a final word on this before we before we get moving on to some announcements and stuff is the fact that you know people want to talk about a, pro- a minor problem here a minor problem there with Linux and use that as justification to uh, not want to use it to try and steer people away from it but those same people forget uh, Windows 3.0 Windows 3.1 Windows 98 not 98 SE special second edition Windows 98, Windows Millennium, ME, XP when it first came out, Vista when it first came out, because some of the problems we're experiencing right now with Ubuntu is simply driver issues, which was the main problem when uh, Vista first came out. Uh, They released it and didn't open it up so that the companies that wrote the drivers, believe it or not, Microsoft doesn't write the drivers for your video and stuff didn't release the driver or didn't open it up so that drivers could be written for Vista until right before it came out. And that's why there was such an issue. We have a similar issue going on right now with uh, Intel onboard video chips on Ubuntu. But it's it's kind of the same issue. They didn't get the information they needed to write the software to get it into the X servers for this edition. This is a show about helping people solve their problems. If this was a a Windows program, uh, most notably something like Computers America, which is one of the longest-running computer programs on the air. Uh, If you go listen to them any night, whatever machines they're talking about, whether it's Apple's, Microsoft, Linux, there are issues, and they're trying to help solve those problems. So at this point, most of the people I know really can't see that Linux has any more issues than Microsoft does, and you're always going to have problems when you're working with computers. Okay, have you got anything else on that, uh, Russ? Oh, I sure do. Nothing else, you can look at Linux in the terms of security problems, and, and that's not to say that Linux doesn't have security problems, because it certainly does, but Windows is a lot easier to exploit, and if you look at the sheer volume of coders out there, especially malware coders, it's much easier to develop and run Trojans and malware for Windows, therefore it gets attacked more. Overall, Linux security is much better because instead of taking a wide open stance, Linux takes a closed stance. You have to open things up, 
Windows is getting better about this. Unfortunately, the way they do it is a little too intrusive for me. The UAC is uh, most people's problem with Vista, and they're trying to lighten that up a little bit with Windows 7, and I haven't noticed that it's quite as intrusive on my Windows 7 install, but they could do things better. As far as jumping through hoops, I think if you listen to any Linux podcast out there, anything that deals specifically with Linux, if you want to talk about Mintcast or Linux Basement or any of the other ones, all they do all the time, and I realize they are advocates just like we are, but, you know, they'll be advocates for Windows too. But if you listen to all the Linux podcasts, every episode talks about how easy things have become in the Linux arena, how easy it is to install, how easy it is to get your systems up and running, how fast things are. These are the things that make Linux better than Windows, and in most cases, they're correct. And if you haven't actually tried Linux in a while, you may want to download a copy of Debian or Linux Mint or even Fedora Core if you want to and try it out because I think you'll find it's at least as easy as using Windows and more serviceable when it comes to problems. I've never had a good experience fixing Windows problems, and when they crop up, they're usually mysterious and uh, evasive and very hard to deal with, and uh, I don't have that problem under Linux. You know, I could probably go on and on and on and on about this, but I think our uh, evangelism probably needs to come to an end at some point, so I, I'm going to stop there. Okay, yeah, and that's that's the whole point. This is a, something that can be debated and be debated, you got Windows fanboys, you got uh, magical fruit-filled computer fanboys, you got those who still wish that the Commodore 64 was king, like myself. You have the Linux fanboys. Now, we could spend an hour, two hours, three hours uh, running this in the ground, uh, then people would be calling us Bert and Ernie. So, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to move on to something else, I think, and uh, let them have their love-hate relationship. Okay, a few, uh, few things we want to we talk about also. We want to help out our friends, everybody within the sound of my voice. We want to help out our friends, Paul and Pete, M0TZO and M3PHP, uh, the gentlemen that run a bunch of websites, but... Uh, the one we're focusing on at this time is hamtest.net. www.hamtest.net. We want to help them out. Let's take it viral. Let's put them, put links to their, their website on everybody's blog. Let's get it to, get to talking about it on Twitter and in the chat rooms and everything else. Let's help these guys out. They're really wanting to relaunch this thing. And I've been over there and it's a good site. If y'all want to hear me talk about it more, Episode, I think it's episode 30 of Resonant Frequency. Y'all go listen to it. But we really want to help these guys out. If you're interested in putting a banner on your website, within a few days, Pete's going to send me a banner. Uh, y'all get in touch with me, and I'll send you a copy. You can stick it on your site and point it straight to hamtest.net. We really want to help these guys out because they do top-notch work. Uh, you got anything about that, Russ? I think they're a great resource. I've been using them lately because I'm thinking about getting upgraded to my extra class here and uh, I've been over to their site and I think uh, they will truly help me get to the point where I can take the test and pass it. We definitely want to help them out and they do a lot of good work and their sites are well put together and well thought out and everybody needs to put up a link or make a mention or a tweet or whatever it is uh, to get the word out about 
the hamtest.com site, and Pete and Paul are good guys, and they've helped us out, so we're going to help them out. I've had people ask me, why do I spend so much time on both shows talking about other people's websites, and in particular talking about other people's podcasts? Well, the whole point is, guys, we're in this together. We're all ham ham radio operators. We help each other out. And the fact of the matter is, people like Jerry Taylor and Colin Martin over there in the U.K., they have will have a fresh, different perspective on the same subject that Russ and myself have and be able to point you in directions that we may not have thought of. You know, a good example is I've been licensed 20 years. Jerry Taylor's been licensed, too, so he's definitely going to look at amateur radio in a different way than I do. And I'm sure Russ feels the same way about it. And that's that's the deal. Enjoyment of the hobby, Elmering, and uh, even as uh, as Jerry says, uh, Elmering, or what does he say? Making ham radio operators one episode at a time. Well, you know what? That's what it's all about. Now, you know, after that little Microsoft thing we did a while ago, there's got to be some happy peppy. Y'all sit there and smile a minute. In fact, walk down the hall and get something to drink, and then come back and sit there and smile a minute, and we'll be right back.
show but this time we're going to talk about some stuff that just works you know it's no secret that russ uh runs debian over at his place i run ubuntu over here uh actually i do have a debian machine now which has solved some problems for me which i've been having with the uh, with the windows and that's probably something i should have brought up in the last segment but i'll talk about it a little bit in a few so there's a lot of simple base stuff that's installed with these distributions and the fact of the matter is if you're the kind of person that goes home goes and sits down at your computer surfs the internet checks your email uh, maybe play some music or a game of solitaire then you really can't tell a whole lot of difference between windows and, and linux for the most part uh, the upside of it is that linux is not going to they're not going to charge you $100 for something you don't own. And even if you buy a computer that has uh, Windows pre-installed, uh, you're paying for that uh, operating system anyway, and you still don't own it. Now, the, the fact of the matter is with Linux, it's a different situation. You can take that code. You can do whatever you want to. You're not restricted by it as long as that. If you change the code, you release it back into the wild so that uh, everybody knows that changes uh, something that's available, and you attribute the work. I mean, that's practically nothing, and most of us are never going to do anything like that in these operating systems. And, you know, the first most important, number one thing that people do with their computers nowadays is surf the Internet. Now, in Windows, you can run Internet Explorer. You can run uh, Firefox. There are a couple other applications. I think you can run Safari in Windows now. I think there's a Windows version of that. Uh, I think Opera has a Windows version. Well, most of this stuff is available under Linux. In the case of Ubuntu, it comes pre-installed with, or the uh, browser that's installed when you install Ubuntu is Firefox. Now, Firefox is, no, wait a minute, I take that back. Epiphany is what's installed. It'll either be Epiphany or Firefox. Okay, so... Uh, the fact of the matter is, I don't remember because I immediately, if it doesn't have Firefox, put Firefox in it because I've been using uh, Mozilla ever since Netscape Navigator 3 and really haven't used anything since. Now, I did use Internet Explorer before that for a very short time. But you have the choice of six, eight different file browsers with different options and different things you can do with them. And... Uh, you know, Firefox is pretty handy because you, there are plugins for it and everything else. And all you have to do is go over to Package Manager, click on it, click Install, and it's there. Epiphany is the same way. 
you can get opera and there's different philosophical issues with some of the uh, linux guys on what file browsers they're going to use but the fact of the matter is that all the modern top-notch file browsers are available in uh, most of your standard linux distributions these days except for internet explorer which why would anybody want to use it so what do you think about uh, web browsers russ well, when it comes to web browsers, I believe on Debian you get Epiphany, and I think on Ubuntu you get Epiphany as well. I know you just said that. What was the one that came out before Epiphany? It was still based on the Mozilla engine. Well, I'm not real sure I was that far back. Um, no, it wasn't that far back, but it was. Bef- it came out as a default before um, Epiphany. Um, it, it's a GNOME application that I'm thinking of, but that's the first thing I do, the same as you. Um, on my Debian machines, I install Ice Weasel. On my Ubuntu machines, I install Firefox. And I would agree, you know, I work for an Internet service provider, and we uh, keep some basic traffic logs. Web browsing is the number one activity on the Internet, at least for our customers. Email comes up close second to web browsing. If you fire up a computer these days and you don't have a browser on it there's probably something wrong and the first thing you're going to download is your browser there are lots of people out there who wouldn't even know how to use a computer other than to browse the web i mean you could just uh, give them uh, some kind of embedded machine that pops up a browser and they'd be happy because that's all they need to use it for especially when it comes to systems like that for people who don't do anything exotic with their machines Linux is great for that because you can do the install, you can fire up your browser, whether you use the one that comes with it or you do a quick install of Firefox or whatever, and the system just works. And I think that's exactly what you're trying to address here. There's no quirks with it. There's no dropouts. You know, there's no weird behavior unless you're going to sites that are mostly in Chinese and have all kinds of spyware attached to them. But, you know, that's up to the user. Uh, when it comes to the browser itself, pretty much just a just work plug in and off you go application. And I'll even go past that. You can go to websites that you are pretty sure are eat up with viruses with uh, Firefox or one of or Epiphany or one of the uh, browsers that runs on Linux and just plow right through them bad boys if there's something on there you're after and it's not going to make a difference. And uh, I know this from experience because there's been codes and stuff I've looked for in the past for different things that you had to go to those kind of places to get. Okay, so uh, number two activity, for the most part, is going to be email. First thing everybody does when they get up in the morning is check their email. First thing they do when they get home is check their email. First thing they do when they get to work is check their email. Now, as far as email clients, you also have variety of stuff that may not be pre-installed, but once again, with the use of the package manager, and you don't have to go out and search all over the internet for this stuff, all you have to do is fire up your package manager, and you can download some of these things. Now, most of the Debian-based distributions come with Evolution pre-installed. Now, Evolution, to my understanding, is very much like Outlook. Now, I've never used it simply because uh, I've used two uh, mail clients in the whole time I've been using computers or using PC type computers I've only used two different uh, mail clients the first one was Eudora 
and I used it for uh, several years, and then I moved over to, doggone, I can't remember what it was called before that, but then uh, it became Thunderbird. Those are the only ones I've been using. Thunderbird also has plugins and attachments and stuff like that, so you can pretty much configure it the way you want to. You can uh, set it up as a news reader, an RSS feed reader, and that kind of stuff. There are plenty others out there. It's my understand that, uh, understanding that one called, I think it's called Claws Mail now, used to be Sleafed Claws, is uh, also a very, very good mail client. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of these uh, mail clients, if you decide to change, it's pretty easy to export out of one and import your mail into another one. Like I said, I've been using uh, Thunderbird for years, and it's never let me down. But once again, all you got to do is fire up Synaptic or uh, the other package manager in the Debian-based system. Well, in Ubuntu, Debian is Synaptic. That's the one for it. Click on it, press the button, down it comes. You don't have to go hunt it down on the Internet. You don't have to do a Google search and find it. It's just there. And once it downloads and installs and puts an icon up in your menu, it's there. It's ready to go. It just works. So what are your thoughts on mail clients, Russ? Evolution is a really heavyweight program if you're talking about just doing email. What it really is is a groupware client uh, or a groupware suite, if you will. It's for doing a lot more than email. It includes uh, collaboration, calendaring, and a lot of stuff that most people who all they want to do is get their email would never need. Why this was chosen as the default email client for GNOME-based systems is beyond me, really. Uh, there's so much involved in it, and there's so much that most people would never use that it doesn't really make any much, any sense to me. Clause Mail that you mentioned is a much better option. It's a really easy-to-use mail suite. It's lightweight, it's fast, it looks good, and it's very intuitive, which is something that a mail program really should be. Where I'm coming from, I you know I like the way Mozilla has developed their applications. I've seen some news articles lately where they've got a few problems, particularly with Firefox, not necessarily with Thunderbird. Honestly, when it comes to installing applications, when I create a new system, the first one that gets installed is IceWeasel. The second one is IceDove. And most people would know those as Firefox and Thunderbird. And easily the most used applications that I can think of when it comes to a Linux distribution, and for me, also a Windows distribution or a Mac OS X distribution, because when I install any of those kind of systems, those are the first applications that I install. While Russ was talking a second ago, I, I have forgotten to tell you all, you know, there's also command line versions of browsers. There are also command line versions of mail software. Uh, we're not going to go into that right now because most of y'all are not going to be uh, too interested in stuff that you do in the terminal at this point anyway. And we're trying to do an overview of things that are pre-installed in some of these uh, distributions that just work. You know, the average user is going to want to fire it up and just go go to town and do these things. Probably the next thing that most people are going to do is some type of word processing. One of the best word processing programs out there that I even use or have installed on my wife's Windows XP machine is called OpenOffice. And the reason that I've been using OpenOffice for <laughs> longer than I've been using Linux is simply because at the time I needed something that could do just about everything that Microsoft Office could do, but I couldn't afford to pay the licensing fees. 
You can create PowerPoint presentations. You can create spreadsheets, word processor documents. You can save them in different formats, including the Office formats. You can uh, bring Office uh, documents in and be able to open them and that kind of stuff. And one of the benefits that OpenOffice has that I don't remember uh, Microsoft Office having is that if you wish to do so, you can save your document as a PDF file without having to go ahead and get the software from Adobe to create a PDF file. I've done this quite a bit myself, and in fact, every time I write an article for one of the local newsletters, I send it to them in PDF format, so all they have to do is uh, glue it into their newsletter and and have at it. The actual interface in OpenOffice is kind of, it looks kind of old. And when I say that, I mean it's not as slick and polished as some of the newer Windows applications. However, with Ubuntu 904, you end up with pre-installed version of uh, version uh, version 3, which is just about the newest. I think it is the newest version of OpenOffice. The uh, interface is starting to look slicker uh, at this point. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. It reminds me a lot of Office 97 looking at it. In time, the interface will get slicker. But the whole point is, you want something that just works. You you probably shouldn't care too terribly much about how it looks. Everything is functional and works right. And I have had, in fact, I've been able to crack open files that uh, my boss has received from Kansas City that is written on the newest version of Microsoft Office that she can't open because hers is a little bit older. She sent them over here to me for me to crack it, crack them open and uh, resave them in a format where she can use them. Don't get me wrong, OpenOffice is the top end. There's a lot of good word processing programs out there. But this is the one I'm, I use and I'm most impressed with. And I do, uh, you know, anything you've seen on the websites that I've written, I normally write it as a word processor document and then copy it over. I really end up using OpenOffice a lot. So uh, what are your thoughts on word processors, Russ? OpenOffice is definitely the Cadillac of the open source word processing suites. And, of course, it does everything else, too. It's a spreadsheet. It's a PowerPoint presenter. It has a database engine built in. Um, and it uses an open storage format for its own uses. It, it stores everything in XML. It kind of hides the fact that it's XML and zip files and goofy little tricks like that, but that's how it uses it. But it also interoperates with the Microsoft Office formats. If you have a .xls file or a .doc file, of course, you can read them, manipulate them, and in most cases, it will look just as if it was done in the Microsoft application. Now, it's, uh, it can be a little quirky because all of the formats had to be reverse-engineered because they're proprietary formats, and sometimes the coding doesn't work exactly right, but it is definitely the way to go for a word processing suite. Now, there's lighter weight stuff. You know, when you think about your typical Windows install, one of the first things that you want to have access to is, you know, WordPad and Notepad. Debian install, for example, will have a text editor, which is a lot like Notepad, and will have Abbey Word, which is a lot like WordPad. And if you go application for application, comparing a default Windows install to a default Linux install, you'll find that Linux developers have pretty much made sure that these basic just work applications 
match a typical Windows install so that you have the same amount of productivity out of the box, whether you use one or you use the other. Honestly, I think we have a few more things to go over when it comes to this kind of thing on these uh, ready-to-use applications, but we probably should throw a break in here first. You read my mind. We'll be right back. couple more things and uh, then we're going to cut out of here because uh, this thing may very well run a little bit long but I couldn't leave out of here without talking about a couple more things. Now we've talked about the basic stuff that most people do every day with their machine and uh, there's a couple more things that come to mind you know you got to listen to your tunes. You want to listen to your tunes there are an abundance of audio players and media players in the Linux operating system some of them are uh 
uh, loaded by default. Some of them you may want to change out something else, but it's only a couple clicks away with the package manager. It's not like you have to go out all over the net looking for uh, real player or some of the other stuff that you have to go track down. By default in Ubuntu, you end up getting Rhythmbox installed, and I believe it's the same way in Debian. Uh, Russell, correct me if I'm wrong. But by default, uh, I believe you get uh, Rhythmbox installed. Now, Rhythmbox is more than just a player. Uh, it will also load music or download podcasts and load music onto MP3 players. In some cases, even on the iPods, some of the newer ones, Apple's trying to make it where you can't really use them without iTunes, but there are ways to get around that out there. Now, I myself prefer one called Banshee, which is very much like Rhythmbox, but there are a few things different in it, and I prefer it. It's the one I've been using since I moved over to Linux. Now, if you're on the KDE desktop, which looks a lot more like Windows, we've discussed that before, there's one over there called Amarok. Amarok is a, really a hot rod. I used to use it when I was running KDE desktops, but that's when I was first exploring things and, you know, wanted the really happening stuff going on these are not the only players and the thing that really helps out is they will run more than just a handful of the different audio files in some cases they'll even convert from one to the other to help you out uh, there's a program called gtk gtk pod which is for ipods which will allow you to download podcasts that are in AUG format and on the fly while it's loading it to your uh, to your iPod, it will change them to MP3 files. And these things, once again, are right in the package manager. They're a couple clicks away. You don't have to go hunt them down. You just click them and let them go. At the very most, you may have to track them down in the menu and put them in the right spot. So what are your thoughts on uh, audio players, Russ? Well, you pretty much echoed the way I use audio players, and the default um, is what I typically stick with, and that's Rhythmbox under Debian. And I don't really have a need for going out of my way to sync iPods with Linux. Um, I do have a Macintosh. I also sync my uh, iPods with Windows, although I think I'm going to stop doing that and go entirely to Macintosh here just because... Apple has coded iTunes in such a way that its performance on Macintoshes is so good and its performance on Windows is so bad that I just want to go ahead and use Macintosh. So I don't uh, worry about iPods under Linux, but there are, you know, what Banshee and GTK Pod and there are several other applications that allow you to do disk-based access for iPods, all good stuff, all work right out of the box and uh, are excellent applications. An extension of uh, audio applications is video applications. You know, if you're going to listen to music, you probably want to watch videos. And I believe the default application is Totem, which is sometimes called Movie Player or is shown as Movie Player, but it's uh, it's actually Totem. It's a pretty good basic player. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It does, you know, what it's supposed to do, but that's about it. For a better player, um, a lot of people really like M Player. It encodes and decodes a lot of formats. It's got a nice intuitive user interface if you install the GUI part of it. Um, it can be used from the command line as well, but, you know, of course, uh, GUI is a lot easier to use and more people are interested in that. So you can use your package manager to, uh, package manager to install mPlayer. 
There's also one called Zine, X-I-N-E, which I think has a much flashier interface and works pretty well. It plays DVDs, it plays AVIs, and most of your other formats. Sometimes it can be flaky about things like Windows Media Files, but if you have the right codecs, you can get them all to work. And what's kind of interesting is that all of your video players will typically play all of your audio files as well. You can use Totem and MPlayer and Zine to play your waves and MP3s and AUGs and, and all of that because, I mean, they're all just media formats and why not? That's my take on the video. I'm not sure what the default player under KDE is, but maybe Richard has some input on that. Actually, under KDE, I'm not real sure. It's been so long since I used it. I know that uh, Movie Player is the default under Ubuntu. If anybody does have a question about that, I will go check it out, but uh, y'all can always throw that live CD in, in and check it out. Last but not least, you know, we got that movie, we got that music coming down. We, we, we've done our done our uh, word processing for the day we've checked our email we've done some research out on the web and before we go and i understand that uh we could spend hours talking about everything that just works out of the box on, on linux but we just wanted to do a short overview so last but not least i want to talk about burning cds burning audio cds uh, we're not going to get into dvds because i haven't really uh, checked that out too much lately but out of the box uh, ubuntu comes with a program called Brasario Disk Burner. That is the uh, default install under Ubuntu. I think it may be under Debian also. I didn't spend a lot of time checking that out, but Russell let us know. I prefer to use one which is called Gnome Baker, which is, once again, it's one I've been using for a long time, and I know where all the buttons are on it, so uh, I really enjoy using it. You find the file, you tell it to burn it to disk, put the disk in the drive and it just fires up and goes you don't have to go out and hunt all over the web for something that'll burn us a cd you don't have to pay big bucks for a copy of nero or something else which is nero nero is what i used to use on windows it uh, from time to time has been expensive but the fact of the matter is brasario gnome baker some of the others can't remember what the one I was using over in KDE when I was there was, but it had more stuff on it than I would ever figure out. The fact of the matter is, all these things, uh, they'll burn music over, they'll burn uh, data over, and some of them will even burn uh, DVDs over if you've uh, saved them on your disk. You know, made your, uh, your fair use back up so you don't lose it. K3B, thank you very much. That's the one I used to use over on KDE. Oh, by the way, we haven't said anything about the chat room this time. We have copious quantity of people in the chat room, so y'all uh, y'all check out the website and find out when that's going on. So, Russ, what do you have to say about uh, CD burners? CD burners, for me, have kind of fallen to the wayside. and don't do a lot of CD burning anymore because everything gets ripped into MP3s and thrown into iTunes. But I used to use, uh, I think it was CDR Toast or CDR Toaster or something like that for burning CDs. There's a thousand of them out there for burning CDs and for burning DVDs. DVDs get to be a little bit trickier because you've got licensing involved and stuff like that, and we definitely don't want to advocate uh, pirating DVDs, so just be careful about what you're doing with when it comes to video. There are plenty of applications you can download that uh, will, you know, do one-step ripping and burning of DVDs. They, the people who develop those applications tend to code more to Windows, but 
they're coming around for Linux. Probably going to stay away from suggesting which ones to look at because I don't want to, uh, you know, point anyone into one of those bad directions and have it come back on me. <laughs> so just be careful about burning the old DVDs and, you know, depending on how close you are to your friendly neighborhood RIAA agent, you might want to stay away from burning CDs too, but you know how it goes. Uh, there's a thousand things out there. Uh, some of them are installed by default. Video players and CD burners and DVD burners, they're all out there. They're all easily downloadable or installed from your package repository. They all work right out of the box. They have intuitive interfaces, a couple of points, a couple of clicks, and you have uh, instant CDs, instant DVDs, and so on. So just like for Windows, your Linux can be as friendly and even more friendly, I think, than your typical Microsoft install. Yeah, just remember, if you're ripping and burning DVDs, make sure they're for your own personal use. That'll keep you out of trouble with the FBI and everything else. We do not advocate boot bootlegging uh, copyrighted material. In fact, that's why we go with Linux. You know, it'd be uh, really easy to be like a whole lot of folks out there that just run a bootleg copy of Windows. <laughs> <laughs> No one does that. Okay. Why would anyone run a bootleg copy of Windows? Yeah, well, there's more of those out there than our registered ones. Anyway. <laughs> Microsoft would have you believe that's why Windows is so expensive, but somehow I think that's putting the chicken before the egg or the horse before the cart or whatever one of those uh, adages is. That's right. Chickens before... Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, that That's the whole point we're getting at this evening, folks. Uh, number one, there's so many things that you when you fire up the one of the new modern distributions you plug that bad boy in you sit through the install process which takes about the third of the time the time of any other operating system that i've run across and you got all your basic stuff in place and running you know there's text editors there's notepad uh, programs you can take screenshots of your screens uh, there's calculators so many other things that are already pre-installed for you to use. It's even gotten to the point that there's some decent Twitter clients and other things that are available that even if they're not available out of the box, uh, they're just a couple clicks away with the package manager. You don't have to go to Adobe and download a file and then go over to another website and download a file and then uh, figure out which one you're going to install first and all this other mess. You just go, you click in the package manager, it fires up and it runs, and you really don't have to fool with it. Now, there you go for the most part, and here, this uh, particular episode was inspired by one of the emails up in the, in the front of the program, and this is what one sounds like when you talk about everything working. This is what, <laughs> you'd rather hear a program where we're fixing problems, I suppose. What do you think, Russ? I think this was informative, um... You brought up some stuff early in the conversation talking about the uh, way applications were developed that I didn't even really think of when the email came around. If, if the hosts are learning something, then surely everybody else is, right? <laughs> well, you know, that's the whole point. People don't, there's not one guy sitting in Redmond writing Windows. There's a whole <laughs> big community of people there, and they don't even write all the software. The drivers right. for the uh, USB drives, the video, the sound cards, and everything else are written by the people who make the hardware. Microsoft doesn't own Intel. They don't own AMD. I, I don't think they do. They may under uh, some other company. but <laughs> Depends on how you define own, I guess, because uh, when it comes to companies that put out products that have Microsoft on them and 
you know, they may not own them, but they, they certainly do a lot of, you know, elbowing, uh, and, and, you know, posturing and positioning and moving people around to get what they want. And this is true. But, you know, it's like, uh, I run a Spectrum uh, 7GLR monitor on one of my machines over here, and, you know, Microsoft probably wouldn't even touch that if it was something they had to deal with. But I went over to Lexmark the other day, and Lexmark even has, uh, printer drivers that are written for Linux. So the fact of the matter is that uh, Windows is not that much different from any of the Linux distributions. It's just that everybody's not gathered up in one place. They're not paid to come in and do it every day. So, you know, they may actually be doing a better job because they're doing it because they want to, not because they have to. And we had an email on the last episode about a guy who actually... uh, is some kind of troubleshooter for Microsoft or troubleshoots Microsoft uh, problems, and he runs Linux himself. And most of the guys I know that do consulting on Microsoft run Linux at home. Does anybody in the chat room have anything else to say? I noticed that uh, K9WKA has uh, reminded us that burning uh, live CDs is uh, another one of those uses for one of those uh, uh, CD burning programs. And the fact of the matter is, I burn a lot of them. About every six months, I'll I'll download probably four or five different distributions and just run them to see what's going on with them. That's the deal. On my desk right now, I have nine different distributions sitting over there on the other desk. Uh, everything from Linux Mint to Ubuntu to Debian to what else is there? PC Linux OS and uh, SUSE and some others. Simply because I want to run them as a live CD and see what's going on with them. You never know. That's one of the, another one of the things that we have with Linux is a choice. If a distribution looks like it will serve me better, then I'll move. As it stands at this point, uh, the Debian-based ones have served me the best. Don says he's still looking for the perfect ham distribution. Well, I think the perfect ham distribution is still out there to be found, but we looked at Shackbox, and it's definitely one of the ones to keep an eye on. Yes, and uh, Debian has one. Uh, or somebody's working one on one that is Debian based that has Debian in the name. Uh, I think it's more of a portable system. You know, the thing about Linux is, Don, you can build the one you want. Kind of depends on what your hardware is, what your considerations are. For the most part, uh, what was it? Digipup was built specifically for ham radio out in the field. There for a while, a lot of the uh, distributions were dropping the amateur radio stuff, and that's one of the reasons I ended up on Debian-based distributions is because I was running SUSE, and they got rid of their amateur radio uh, uh, repository for a while. It's my understanding it's back. I think Don's like me probably right now thinking, I wish I had that kind of time. People don't have enough uh, time to set aside and decide, well, I think I'm going to create a new Linux distribution today. Well, no, not even that. I mean, you take something like Debian or uh, Ubuntu or uh, even Fedora or PC Linux OS, and, uh, you know, you strip everything out of them that you don't need, and then you go out and you you add what you do need a little bit at a time. Eventually, you've got it there, and in fact, I've heard that some of these distributions have software hidden off in them somewhere where once you get them the way you like them, you can burn them off to a a live CD and you've got your own distribution. That's what we need to do. We need to get Ted started on building the perfect ham radio distribution. There will be a perfect Linux distribution, and maybe one of you will be the one who develops it, or maybe it'll be me, or 
Maybe it'll be Richard down there in Balt Springs, Texas. You're going to put Balt Springs on the map. It's already <laughs> on the map. It's right next to Dallas. <laughs> we are like the third smallest city in Dallas County. We're only about eight square miles. Well, that's a claim to fame you can be proud of. Well, I'll take it back. We may be the smallest now because the two two that I was thinking of that were the smallest, Dallas has done absorbed them. Well, I don't know about you, but it's time for yeah. me to get on out of here. So let's uh, go ahead and we'll have Richard start to wrap up. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for this time. We've got another one in can, it seems. I think we've been fairly productive this time around. Next time, I'm sorry to tell you this, we're probably going to talk about some problems that you can fix with a little little bit of uh, knowledge and a little bit of time. But that's okay. Because until then, I'm Richard down here in Balt Springs, Texas. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can send me an email at kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. Or follow me on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com stroke kb5jbv. Or visit the forums. You can contact us over in the forums. There's a set of forums over there for Linux in the Ham Shack at blacksparrowmedia.com. www.blacksparrowmedia.com. And with that, we're going to toss it over to the Pine Valley and see what happens. All right. Well, I caught you. And uh, this is me, Russ, K5TUX. Down in the the Pine Forest Valley in north central Arkansas. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash jrwoodman. You can find me on all kinds of other social networking sites using jrwoodman moniker. You can email me at k5tux at blacksparrowmedia.com. Feel free to send email, ask questions, uh, leave us feedback on iTunes, leave us feedback on the website at blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS. If you want to find out why I never say where I actually live, go to my QRZ entry and look up the town I live in and you'll understand why. You got anything else to add to that or are we done? No, that's pretty much it. I'm going to hunker down here in the bunker in Balt Springs, Texas, y'all. This is KB5JBV and we'll see y'all next time.